go ahead and sit down, get comfortable. Not too comfortable, though, okay? Well, we lost an hour of sleep. There's that out there, right? Good news is I've had an energy drink and a cup of coffee, so who knows what's about to happen. Uh, But man, anyway, welcome to Northridge Church. Welcome home. And you know, one of my favorite things is to hear from a first-time guest or someone who's just new to Northridge Church, you know, when they... Uh, whether they're watching online or they come to one of our campuses, just as express, man, the, the first time I came, I just felt at a place where I belonged, right? That's what we want. That's what we desire. That's why we say welcome home, because we want a place for you to belong before you become, right? That's what our desire. And so to everyone, uh, those of you online, those of you at Webster, and those of you who are uh, here at Rochester, welcome home and welcome to Northridge Church. We're honored to have you. I, I really mean that. We are honored to have you. We get it, right? A weekend is full of activities, and you chose to make worship and and engaging with God's word one of those, and so we're honored and thankful for that. And I don't know if you know this or not, you probably do, but three weeks until Easter, right? It might still be snowing, but it will be Easter. (laughs) Jesus is alive whether the snow comes or not, right? And it's a celebration, and here's my challenge for you. Hoping you've been thinking about this, but here's a reminder, Right, Three weeks until Easter, and hopefully we, as the church, are praying for opportunities. Opportunities to share our faith with our coworkers, our neighbors, and really just bring an invitation for them to celebrate and understand what Easter is about, that Jesus conquered the grave, and because of that, we have the victory over our sin. And so I would just challenge you over these next three weeks as we build up to Easter that you would just take some time to pray that God will give you opportunities to invite people, whether it's a, a link that they watch in the comfort of their home or whether they sit next to you in the service. Man, let's be a church that longs to invite, even in the crazy season. You think people need God in the season that we've been? I bet you they're actually more open to God right now than maybe they've ever been of what we walked through. So as a church, let's take advantage of those opportunities. So, you know, as we begin this brand new series, I remember growing up in, in my high school uh, you know, 16, 17 years old, and I would come home from school, and when I didn't have sport practice, I'd get home around 3, 3.30, and I was just kind of exhausted from the day, and, and really all I wanted to do for an hour was just kind of decompress. Like, it was a long day at school, I did work, I still got homework, and so when we'd walk in the door, mom would ask us, like, you know, how was the day, how things going, and we would just kind of be like, mom, can we just chill on the couch and watch some TV and just decompress? And the problem was, as a teenage boy, you know, we sitting on the couch, and have you ever watched daytime TV? There's nothing to watch, absolutely nothing. And so we would find ourselves day after day, month after month, just kind of like scrolling through channels and channels and channels. And that continued until I found Judge Judy. <laughs> Come on, just admit it. If you watch some Judge Judy, you're like me, yes. Boldly put your hand in the air. I mean, I... I I grew to love Judge Judy, this this older, you know, smaller, but spicy judge, right? And I loved the drama in her courtroom, but what I loved about Judge Judy is, like, you just knew she was the boss. You knew she was in charge of her courtroom, and she was after the truth and justice. And so, growing up for, you know, a couple years watching Judge Judy, it kind of, like, drew me into the courtroom. It kind of enticed me to want to know what it was like to to experience what what it was to be in a courtroom, to understand in what takes place. And so you skip ahead about seven years in my life. I'm about 25 years old, and I go to the mailbox. And if you don't know me that well, I love getting the mail. 
it's a weird like cork about me. I love getting the mail, and I, I go to the mail, and I, I guess what's in there? My first jury summons. And most people, when they get that, they're like, why God, me? I, what did I do wrong? But I was like, yes, let's go, baby. <laughs> Judge Judy, here I come. Maybe I'll get in her courtroom. And so I got this ju- jury su- you know, summons, and I get ready for that day. And everybody told me, hey, you're a pastor. You're, you're going to be the first person they kick out of the, that jury selection. Like, you have no shot. And so I showed up. I told my wife, I'm going to court today, baby. Here we go. I've been waiting for this moment. And so, you know, you, they, you get this big group, and then they select a group, and they take you in, and they just grill you. Right? They ask you question after question after question to see if you're going to fit for them, whether they're going to release you or put you on. And believe it or not, I was selected. I was selected. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, Okay. So the day comes, and I'm like, baby, I'm going to court. <laughs> you know, and I walk in there, and, and when you walk into the courtroom, and you know you're a part of this justice system, you feel the reverence, right? You feel like what's happening, and then all of a sudden, it hit me, right? Me and a group of six to eight people are going to decide whether this person is guilty or innocent. That weight sits on you a little bit. And it's kind of with that setting, it's kind of with that lens, we're going to start this series. What we're going to be for the next four weeks is we're going to be in a courtroom setting. And really, the courtroom setting is ours. And we're starting this series called All Rise. And over the next four weeks, here's what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the most amazing story in all of history through the lens, through the filter of a courtroom. And really in this series, we're going to study the characters and the layers of this story. We're going to look at the defendant, the prosecutor, the advocate, the judge. And through looking at each character in the courtroom, we will begin to see a greater understanding of what Jesus accomplished for us. Now, now, let me give you this caveat, because this series is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do at Northridge Church. If you don't know much about how we write sermons and series, we often go after what James says, that we want to be hearers of God's Word, so we want to gain knowledge and theology of who God is, and out of that, we would become doers of God's Word. So we often teach theology that will change who we are. We look at God, and based off of who He is, we want to become more like Him. And so a lot of times in my messages, you'll, you'll get practical application, and we will get to that in the series but it's going to take a couple weeks to unfold the plot and look at the characters. And here's what we're, where we're going after, right? We want to carefully dissect the confusing yet life-changing truth that people who are hopelessly guilty can somehow be treated as innocent members of God's family. That's what we're going after, and that's what we're going to see unfold layer after layer in this court case. And so we're going to dive in. And when you think about a court case, often we think of the courtroom, right? That's where it takes place. But what's interesting is every court case actually starts outside of the courtroom. And it starts with the first character, the accuser. right? The accuser is just somebody who brings charges, criminal charges, against somebody else. That's that's where the process of the courtroom begins, is when somebody says, hey, they did this against me, and that broke the law. And that's where a court case begins with the accuser. And so that's where we're going to start. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in two places today, Zechariah chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 3. So turn in your Bible, Zechariah 3, Genesis chapter 3. And if you got your Northridge app, go ahead and jump in there. You can keep notes as we kind of work through this process. And my assumption is it's probably pretty accurate that most of us 
don't know what's happening in Zechariah chapter 3. It's not a book we often go to when it comes to reading our Bible. And so in Zechariah chapter 3, let me kind of set the context and the scene for you. Zechariah is a prophet. And God would use prophets to speak directly to his people to, to declare truth. And in Zechariah chapter 3, he's a prophet of, of Judah, the, the nation of Israel, and he has a vision of a man named Joshua. Now, I'm not talking about Joshua who followed Moses' leadership. We're talking about Joshua, the high priest in this culture and this day and age. And it's important for us to understand what a high priest is, because in our culture, we don't have high priests running around. Right? A high priest was probably the most significant, important man in all of Israel. Why is that? Well, because he was the mediator between God and his people. This is what's different than today, because today we don't need a mediator because of Jesus Christ. We can go directly to God. Praise the Lord for that. We don't need some high priest, but back in this culture, you couldn't go directly to God. You had a mediator. He was the high priest. And to give you an example of this, uh, in this day and age, there was a day called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the high priest would go to the Holy Holies where God's presence dwelt, and he would offer sacrifices for the sins of the entire nation because he was that mediator. That's what made him a significant man. And so Zechariah has this vision of Joshua, this high priest. Let's take a look at it. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here we see this vision, and Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and guess who's on his right? Our mortal enemy, the devil himself, Satan. And what is he doing? He's accusing Joshua just like he accuses you and me, right? And so here we are introduced to the first character in this court case. The devil is our prosecutor. You see, what you have to understand about our enemy, Satan, is what he loves to do is bring accusations against you and I. He loves to stand before God and accuse us of our rebellion and our sin to him. He constantly loves to remind God of who we are. And so he accuses us over and over again. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 12, it gives us a little bit of insight to that. It says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night. And so we see one of the greatest schemes, one of the things our enemy loves to do all the time is just accuse us, to tell us of who we are. And he loves to tell God, hey, this is who your people are. And if you bring up Revelation chapter 12 again, here's, here's what's interesting. It says, for the accuser. Now, the original language there, the Greek there for accuser is just the word diablos, where we actually derive the word devil from. And it's describing who he is. And so he's our prosecutor. We're standing in this courtroom, and we often like to think we're watching from, the, from you know, the little aisles, but no, 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 we're not. You see, what we have to understand about this courtroom is the devil is our prosecutor, and we are the accused. So we are like Joshua in this vision, because the enemy is accusing us of something. We are standing on trial. This is our life, my life, and your life. This is our trial. So the question is, what are we being accused of? I mean, if there's accusations against me or against you, I want to know what they are so I can defend myself. And we actually see those accusations in Zechariah. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before 
the angel. See, here's what's interesting about this, this vision is here is Joshua. Remember, he's the high priest. And he's standing before God in filthy rags. Now, that description is, is very significant because, again, we have to understand who the high priest is. In this culture, everybody knew who the high priest was based off of how he dressed. So any Jewish person living in this culture, they could locate who the high priest was because he had specific garments he was supposed to wear, and they were never dirty, never filthy rags. And so this description gives us an indication of what Joshua and what we are accused of by the accuser, right? It, what makes us unclean, right? Because ultimately what he's saying is that standing before God is this high priest who is unclean, and the, the high priest would never be unclean because he couldn't be our mediator, and so what makes us unclean before God? Well, it's simple, sin. You see, the devil is accusing us of rebellion, which is really just disobedience to God. That's what sin is. It's when we choose to live our lives in a manner that is in rebellion to God, disobedience to God. We know what you say, God, but we're going to choose a different route. And so our prosecutor is bringing this case against you and I. He's saying, your people, God, are living in rebellion to you. They are unclean and not worthy of you. And so he begins his case. And here's the problem for all of us. The devil has a really good case. Right? As he stands up and he begins the prosecution, he has gobs and gobs of evidence against us. Right? He says, hey, exhibit A, look at this. I brought images, I brought video, I brought a highlight reel of all the sin that they have been involved in. I mean, can you imagine that? Standing on trial for your life, and here you have to watch a video of the sin that you have chosen, the rebellion, the disobedience to God that you chose in your life, right? You get to watch a video of maybe that time where you chose to cheat on your spouse. You get to watch a highlight reel of that time where you fudge the numbers at work so you would make a little bit more money. You get to watch a video of that little white lie that you told that you thought no one knew about. You get to watch a video where, where you fired someone who didn't deserve to be fired. You get to watch a video of that time you were supposed to help somebody and you walked on by. Here's the reality is our prosecutor, his case is strong. It's chalked full of evidence of our rebellion against God. And to make matters even worse, we know we're guilty. Right? We, we watch the evidence and we're like, yeah, that was me. Yep, that was me. How am I going to get around this? But here's what's crazy. Here's what's absolutely crazy. We watch all the evidence being poured out by our prosecutor, and all he does is he simply says, hey, I rest my case. And what happens in a courtroom when the prosecutor rests his case is it shifts over to the defense. It's our turn to be defended, right? And so here's the problem, yet again, is we don't have a lawyer who in their right mind would pick up our case. Right? The evidence is so, the, the case is that much of a landslide that not even the pro bono free attorney would actually defend us. And so guess who has to defend us? It is us. We are our only hope of changing the judge's mind. And here's what's crazy. We know we're guilty, but somehow in our heart, we believe that there is a chance that we can convince the judge to rule in our favor. 
We know, we know we're guilty. The evidence is clear. We can't get around that. But somewhere in our hearts and our heads, we believe that through something, we can change the judge's mind. I mean, have you ever been there in life? Where you know you're guilty, and yet you still defend yourself. If you haven't, I've been there. Maybe in one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life. You see, in high school, I had a significant problem. I was addicted to pornography. And so when my parents weren't home, I would often find myself uh, diving into explicit material. And so one day, uh, my parents were gone, and I was, you know, diving into pornography. And little did I know, and for those of you who are are younger, you might not understand this, but when I was in high school, we had this thing called dial-up internet, okay? And so what that meant is you connected to a phone line. And little did I know, as I was watching this explicit material, it was connecting to a 900 number, and I was being charged for the time. I had no clue until one day, about two weeks later, we were all chilling in our living room, all my brothers and sisters, and my mom and dad walked in. They were paying the bills, and they said, hey, we have this bill. My parents didn't know what a 900 number was. So they said, we have this bill that we don't know what it's for. Does anybody have any clue about it? In the moment they said that, I was sitting on the couch and I could just feel the weight of my guilt rushing over me. The shame, because I knew it was me. I knew I was guilty. I knew I was caught. And you would think in this moment that this would be the chance for me to be like, mom, dad, this is who I am and I need help. Oh, no, 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 no. I defended myself. And so my mom walked out to the kitchen, and I slowly followed behind, and I went to my mom, and I said, hey, mom, I think I know what that bill is for. You see, I like to play video games on the internet. And uh, this one game came up, and it said upgrade, and I'm making this up off the top of my head. So I'm like, man, I upgraded, and I filled out some information, and the game got so much better, and I think I didn't know, but they were charging me for it, and so it's my bill, I'll pay it, okay? And my mom is buying this. My mom is like, okay, that makes sense. Me and your dad had no clue until my older brother walked into the room. Barry, come on, Barry. And Barry walks in and he just simply says these words. He says, mom, I know what a 900 number is and it's not video games. And right in that moment, I knew I was caught. I was guilty. And here's my question, when you are guilty, when you feel that sense of guilt coming over you, that shame coming over you, what do you do when you know you're guilty, but yet you still don't want to deal with the repercussions and the consequences of your choices? What do we do when that happens? I'll tell you what, we defend ourselves. And if you want a good picture of that, it's America. Right, America has lived in a, in a manner where we have chosen to, to, to go a different route than God's path. We want to enjoy the luxury and the pleasure of our sin, but yet we don't want to have to deal with the consequences that come with that. And so what do we do when we're guilty, but we don't want to take on the responsibility of our actions? We bring a defense, and that's exactly what happens in the courtroom of our lives. And we see our defense in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, let me set the scene for you. Adam and Eve are created in this perfect world. There is no rebellion. There is no disobedience. It's theirs. They can enjoy it. One simple rule. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was it. Enjoy the animals. Live it up. It's an amazing place. Don't eat of this tree. And yet, 
That's exactly what they did. We see it in Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So right here, for the very first time in humanity, we choose rebellion. Adam and Eve, we, we can't blame them because yet we do the very same thing in our lives. We choose to go a different route than God's route. We rebel, we sin, we disobey God. And don't miss this, verse 7, it says, the eyes of them were both open. Do you know what that means? For the very first time, Adam and Eve felt the weight of their guilt. They realized that they were living in rebellion to God and that shame and that guilt poured over their lives. And so what do they do with it? Do they come clean to God? No, they begin their defense, which is the same thing as our defense in this courtroom. The first thing we choose to do is we hide. The first layer of our defense is just to avoid court altogether. We'll wait until the judge subpoenas us. Like, we're just going to avoid this case. We're going to pretend like it doesn't exist. We're just going to ignore the rumors and the media. We'll just stay away. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. They know they're guilty. They feel the weight of their guilty. And their first defense is to hide. We see it. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they run from God. They hide from God. And here's what's so significant about that is the very God who can save us is the very God we run from. You realize that's what sin does to you when you have a problem and you're in need. We sang that song, Lord, we need you. But sin tells you to run from your Savior, the one who can redeem and restore you. It hides you from your healing. That's the reality. And so that's what Adam and Eve do. They, they hide. And it's so significant because here God, it says they heard the sound of the Lord coming in the garden. And this was the very first time they would hide from God. Normally when they heard God, they would come and dwell with him. They would walk with him. They would laugh with him. But yet the separation from their rebellion causes them to hide. And we do the same thing, right? The first layer of our defense in the courtroom is we hide. We ask questions like, can we just pretend that didn't happen? Right? Like, I, I, know, I know I did that, but like, let's just kind of ignore it. Like, if we just ignore it long enough, it will go away. Or maybe we ask, like, you know, our kids get redos. Could I have a redo? Or a mulligan, right? Some of us are golfers. I know you need mulligans. And here's, here's the reality. We hide because we don't want to face the responsibility and the consequences of our choice. We hide from it. That's why Adam and Eve were hiding from God, because they don't want to see him face to face and deal with the repercussions of their sin. And so how do we hide? Well, we ignore the problem. We just ignore it. We sweep it under the rug, or we downplay it. Eh, it's not that big of a deal. I didn't hurt anybody, right? This is just for me. And after hiding, we realize, okay, it's a good framework for our, our defense, but we need more layers to it. And so the first thing we do is we hide, and then we build a greater case. We now blame others. This, this obviously can't be my fault, God. And so let me blame, let me shift the blame from me and the responsibility to me to somebody else. Our, the second layer of our case, our defense, is we blame other people. And Adam and Eve did this. It says this. It says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here, here begins this blame game, right? Because it can't be my fault, God. It has to be somebody else's. And it starts with Adam. And I'm just like, 
woman. Sorry, and, and in, this, in this blame of Eve, Adam blames two people, actually. The first one is God. You, you God, let's look at my track record, okay? Like, when she wasn't around, that was good. You made her. You brought her here. And look what happened, God. And if it's not your fault, God, it's definitely Eve's fault. Can't be mine. Like, we were just enjoying a beautiful picnic in the garden, God. It was amazing. And little did I know she was cutting up over this sinful fruit. But it tastes good, God. We're gonna, can you blame me? Hey, don't miss this. I want to pause here because this is really important. Haven't we seen this in our culture? Right? Haven't we seen this recently with really prominent religious people like Ravi Zacharias? Where men choose to do stupid, moronic things. And what's our defense? We blame the women in our life. My wife wouldn't give this to me, so I went and got it somewhere else. So it's her fault. No, jerk, it's your fault. And here's what's interesting about the text. Eve never blames Adam, but Adam blames Eve. And we've seen this throughout our culture where men blame women for their problems. And it's time we just take responsibility for them. That's what we do. That's, that's the second layer of our case is, God, this can't be my fault. And guess what? Eve fought along. Eve, after Adam throws her in the bus, she's like, oh, thanks, by the way, Adam. That was great leadership. Good job. No wonder I don't follow your lead, right? Thanks for the leadership, but I'll take that bus and I'll throw it somewhere else. Because it was the serpent's fault. Right? He told me I'd be like you, God. He told me I'd be wise and I would have understanding. And guess what? Right now, I don't feel like you, God. But it can't be my fault. And this is what we do. Isn't it what we do? We, we blame our circumstances. Like, God, if I just had more money, I wouldn't have to choose this. Or God, if you just put me in a different place or a different job, like, I would be happier. I would choose better. No, then we blame the people in our life. We blame our spouse, right? If my spouse was just a better mate, if they were just a, a better person, like, uh, my life would be easier. And I wouldn't choose these things. Or we, we blame our friends, our coworkers, no, our kids, right? They just drive me crazy, God. It's their fault. No, no, no. It's our community group. If they just would hold me accountable to my problem and challenge me more, I would have never done that. And then we, we, we end with God, right? God, you're all powerful and you're all mighty and you're all knowing. You knew I was going to choose this. Why didn't you just save me? Why didn't you just step in, God? You could have done it. You, you obviously don't love me. It's your fault, God. So we build this case. We hide from God. But then when he finds us, we blame him. It's your fault. Can't be my fault. And then third, we're not done yet. We hide, we blame, and then we bribe. And you don't see this in Genesis, but you see it all throughout the pages of the Bible. And, and let's not confuse this, right? Because when we think about bribing, we think about our culture, right? And, you know, when anybody powerful in power, like a politician or someone who's rich, does something they don't want to take the consequences for, they just write a check, like, get out of it, right? And our culture has accepted that, unfortunately. But our bribe is way more nuanced than that. Our bribe is way more sneaky than that. Because you know how we bribe this judge? We bribe him with good deeds. Here's what we say to God. We make a deal. And this is the first part of, we actually kind of admit our guilt. We're like, yeah, God, the evidence is clear, right? Like, I am wearing filthy rags. I've, I've made some sinful choices in my life. But here's the deal, God. Let me just bribe this judge, right? Here's, I'm going to give you my life. And here's what I mean by that, God. I'm just going to live in a manner where the pendulum of my life will always have more good than it will bad. 
Right? And if I live this way, God, if my good always trumps my bad, if my good always outweighs, if I just do enough good to overcome my bad, God, judge, you'll change your mind, right? You'll rule in my favor. I'll be acceptable to you. And we bribe God with good deeds. And that's our defense, right? We're standing on trial, we're being accused, and there's a ton of evidence. And so we hide, we blame, and we bribe. Can I tell you, many people live this way. Many people are hoping and praying that this will be the thing that changes the ruling in the courtroom. And here's my question as we begin to unfold this series. Here's my question that I want you to chew on and I want you to think about. It's a very important question. Do you believe that this will be enough to convince the judge? Think about that for a second. Do you believe that your hiding and your blaming and your bribery will be enough to convince the judge to ignore the evidence and rule in your favor. And remember what we're talking about here. In this courtroom, we're not talking about a misdemeanor. We're not talking about a slap in the wrist or a couple years in prison. We're talking about your eternity. We're talking about forever and ever. That's what this judge is ruling on in our lives, where you will spend forever after you die, all of eternity, with God or apart from God. Do you believe that case will change the judge's mind? Many people believe it is. That somehow the judge will look at those good deeds, shifting of responsibility and hiding will be enough to change the ruling. Here's what I would suggest. That's a a ridiculously giant risk with your eternity. And I believe it's not a risk that's worth taking. Because here's what I know, and here's what I believe, is as we begin to unfold the layers of this courtroom, you will see that there is a way greater and better option for your defense. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. Let's pray. God, we are guilty. It's so obvious. The evidence is clear. And yet, for some reason, we still try to defend ourselves, try to make ourselves look acceptable to you, God. And we recognize that there's only one way that we're accepted by you, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, God, help us to see that. Pray for the person who's who's banking and praying that their good deeds will be enough, that they would realize it's not. Help us to see that as we walk through this courtroom case. In Jesus' name.